Thank you for coming back. What uh, brought us here this evening was a series of difficult question cards that you all turned in some time ago. And one difficult question that you turned in spawned this uh, entire presentation for this evening. Here's the question. One of you wrote, I believe that homosexuality is a sin and that is supported by the Bible. I don't start conversations about this, but if I'm in one that turns this way, how can I defend this point of view in this day and age without seeming intolerant or hateful? So in the previous two evenings, we've talked about LGBTQ plus people and the Bible. We talked about LGBTQ plus people in our church. This week, we want to address LGBTQ plus people in our culture, in our society, in our national dialogue. So I think our questioner really hits a nail on the head with this question. Uh, I've felt the weight of it. I can't tell you how many times I have thought over the last year, I, you know, never mind, I don't want to do this. Uh, I shouldn't do this. I can't tell you how many people when they heard what we were going to go ahead and do these evenings, gasped, groaned, rolled their eyes, looked fearful. There's nothing traditionally Christian you can say about this anymore in public without being labeled a homophobe, intolerant, hateful. And the same goes the other way. If you say something even moderately kind to LGBTQ people, even moderately accommodating in a conservative church setting, you get labeled liberal snowflake, compromising, wishy-washy. So our culture is completely polarized, pushed to the poles, nothing in between, everyone ready for a fight. This polarization is wrong, and it is very destructive. Polarization is not Christian because it decides what it thinks about an issue before it is listened, before it is listened to the Holy Spirit, before it is listened to Scripture. It's wrong because it seeks to pit people against one another, to pass judgment on another as part of the bad guy team. Polarization is also not intellectual, because it does not listen, it does not reason, it does not think or consider or collaborate, polarization just decides. And polarization is also not American because America has always been and always will be people of all races, colors, creeds, learning to compromise and live together under a banner of freedom. Whereas polarization seeks to label people to push them from the inside to the outside, to call them enemy, silence them as quickly as possible and hopefully forever. So if we sit tight this evening, we're all going to hear something that we agree with. And we're all going to hear something that we disagree with. And we're all going to hear something that brings us some peace. And we're all going to hear something that challenges us or even upsets us. Such are the ways of God in our world. So we're going to take a winding journey for the next two hours. So before we do, let us take a deep breath. And let us pray.
Father, tonight, for all of us who call your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us remember his prayer that we would be one as you and the Father are one. Lord, you have given us minds, the most, the most spectacular minds in all of your creation. Let us use them tonight to reason and consider. Let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Lord, you have chosen to put us in this land, in this country, in this time, a land known throughout the world for diversity. Help us understand tonight what it takes to maintain diversity and the sacrifices it must, uh, it must be given to live in diversity. It is the name of Christ Jesus we pray, Lord, over all lands, all minds, and all the cosmos we pray. Amen. Why don't we start with this pair? I think we have a picture. Yeah, Roy and Silo, the so-called gay penguins of the Central Park Zoo. These male birds in the Central Park Zoo in the early 2000s started performing courtship rituals toward each other and tried to hatch a rock. So the zookeepers gave them a real egg to see what they might do with it, and they successfully hatched and cared for Tango. And they became the subject of an award-winning children's book called And Tango Makes Three and a children's play. But a few seasons later, the world cried out in rage when Roy and Silo split up. And Silo mated with a female penguin and started a traditional penguin family. How could this happen? One LGBTQ plus columnist wrote, quote, Silo is living a lie. Unquote. How dare Silo leave Roy for a female penguin? Now, as a biologist watching this, I, I, I did have to laugh because zoologists have always known that captivity for animals is very stressful, and animals in zoos do unusual things. Nothing that happens inside a zoo ever counts as biological science outside the discipline of animal husbandry, which is the science of raising animals in captivity. The notion that these were ever gay birds or that one of them is now sexually repressed because he has returned to normal mating behavior is a notion that only pop culture and junk science could have brought us. But saying that is no longer allowed. Furthermore, we're now culturally in a place where disagreeing with someone is the same as hating them. It used to be, and it was in my lifetime, you could have a good friend who smoked. You could have a good friend who drank too much. You could have a good friend who slept around. And you could frown on that and you could say, hey man, that's not good for you. You drink too much. You're... But you could still be friends. You could still be friends. Say that now, and what's the response? Don't hate. Don't judge me. In colleges, I was just becoming a follower of Jesus. All of my friends knew that I thought their sexual experimentation was not good for them. But we were all still friends. 
But now if you say you don't think same-sex relationships will lead to a life fully lived, that's the same as hating. It's oppression. It's a human rights attack. And we can't be friends. And we can't go to church together. And we're done. Because you're a homophobe. And that's a lot like being a racist. Some of you would say it's exactly like being a racist. But none of that can be really true. Because I have and, and have had many gay acquaintances and many gay friends. My beliefs lead me to believe that a part of their attractions, if it were lived out, would not be good for them. And in that friendship, we disagree about that. And I don't hate them for that disagreement. And my friends don't hate me for that disagreement. I wish them no harm. I would stand up for them if someone tried to hurt them. I enjoy hanging out with them. We have things that we can talk about. We have things that we enjoy doing together. Often one of those things is living out faith in Jesus Christ. This labeling of people who disagree with this has got to stop. It will destroy everything. Snowflake. Homophobe. We're not getting anywhere with these loveless labels. This is Christianity, loving those with whom we disagree. This is also logic and thinking. Demanding that someone have all my same values before we live in community together means that I'm going to be lonely. This is also America where we are united around these truths which we hold to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And each is endowed with certain inalienable rights by God, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, even if we don't think that pursuit will actually lead to happiness. We extend to people the right to pursue it. Gay marriage has been legal in 50 states since June of 2015 by Supreme Court ruling. Is there anything left for a traditionalist church to do in this culture? I say yes, and furthermore, I say only just now probably can we actually get started. I've wondered many times since June of 2015, if God did not take away the political weapons of the traditionalist church and the political power away from the traditionalist church so that we could get back to doing what we were made to do, changing the world through love instead of legislation. Lori brought it up on one of our nights during questions, and you all know this to be true. The church used to torment divorced people. When I first got into Christianity, first got involved in Lakeland, I was shocked at how often people a generation older than me were terrified to come to church because they had been divorced. I have friends now who were kicked out of their Christian schools back in the 1960s and 70s because their dad walked out on the family. So mom was tossed from the church and the kids were kicked out of their good urban Christian schools. Shameful treatment. As culture became more tolerant of divorce, the church shrieked in horror. 
at first. But finally, we had to calm down and ask ourselves, well, what would Jesus do? Because in Jesus' time, divorce was also very common, very easy to come by. It appears we have discerned that he would let divorced men and women come to church. And the church would start offering classes on marriage to prevent divorce in the first place. And the church would employ marriage counselors. And the church would offer books on marriage. Instead of tormenting and excluding people because we could, because we had the power to do so, once we lost our power, we started ministering to people, which is what we should have been doing all along. We haven't changed our beliefs about divorce, but we've changed our approach radically. We haven't changed our beliefs on divorce, but we have changed our approach radically. And we should keep doing this where marriage is concerned because cultures that don't value marriage and allow the family to collapse collapse into all sorts of chaos. And all of you who work in the developing world and third world know this well. When it becomes normal for men to wander around the countryside or the city, spawning three, four different families, none of them that they're responsible for, leaving women and children to fend for themselves, after that it's all downhill and irreversible poverty. In the same way, our approach to same-sex relationships is going to change. Now that we've lost the power to exclude, a power we never should have been using in the first place. The 1970s and the 1960s and some parts of the world even before that, God began bringing to the attention of the church gay and transgendered people. But instead of ministering to them, many traditionalist churches got busy tormenting them. We made gross accusations. We made gross depictions of them. We taught our children to say, ooh, that's gross. We denied them jobs. We denied them services. We denied them access to hospital emergency rooms to visit loved ones. We denied them the right to inherit property they had accumulated together. Denied, denied, denied. Our treatment was so harsh, it had the opposite effect. Instead of revulsion, it generated sympathy and moral outrage against the church. And the whole world opposed the church and finally the Supreme Court. What will happen now? I believe we'll finally start doing what we should have been doing all along. We'll start ministering to people. We'll welcome people into our community. We'll teach kids early about sexuality. We'll teach kids early about gender identity. We'll address the effects of childhood abuse, the effects of pornography, the effects of difficult upbringing, the effects of rejection by peers. We'll address same-sex attractions and all sorts of attractions. There are ministries already at work doing this. Our beliefs about same-sex relationships will probably not change. But our approach, which was always wrong, absolutely will change. Our beliefs about same-sex relationships will probably not change, but our approach, which was always wrong, absolutely will. So we've said a lot about this issue, but I have not yet answered the question. 
One of you wrote, I believe that homosexuality is a sin and that is supported by the Bible. I don't start conversations about this, but if I'm in one that turns this way, how can I defend this point of view in this day and age without seeming intolerant or hateful? My pastoral recommendation for all of us in this community is generally do a lot less talking about all topics and more listening. More listening to the Spirit, more listening to Scripture, more listening to the people around us. C.S. Lewis is my favorite Christian author, no secret. He wrote a little about same-sex relationships, but very little. Because he said... He had never been tempted with that particular sin, and he did not want to advise others how to face an adversary he himself had never met in battle. I wish we were all that wise. I think we would all do better to keep quiet unless we have skin in the game, unless it is truly affecting us. And I'm not talking about being triggered by a viral video going around on social media. I'm talking about one of your children telling you they may identify with an LGBTQ plus orientation. I'm talking about your LGBTQ plus friend wanting to come to church. I'm talking about you yourself feeling same-sex attraction or gender questioning. For these people with skin in the game, the discussions I can tell you from experience, are much, much easier to have. They're very honest. Every line of the discussion is filled with truth. There's no theorizing. There's no yeah, buts, or what ifs. Every point you discuss, every step you take through the discussion comes from someone's real life that's really happening in real time. Frankly, most people talk about this issue far beyond their education and experience with it and far beyond any possible good it could do in their life or anyone else's. Let me put it this way. If you don't personally know a gay person, and you rant about homosexuality all the time, you are way out of order. If you don't know a gay person who identifies as a born-again Christian, you haven't seen enough of this world yet. If you don't know someone who lived as a gay person for years, then switched to living as a straight person and has been happily married ever since, your view of what goes on is too simplistic. And if you don't know someone who tried really hard to live in a heterosexual marriage for years, but it did not work, and they came out as gay, and they got a divorce, and it was very painful, you aren't aware of how much pain this can, there can be around this and how difficult this can be for some people. If you didn't know that same-sex relationships have been widely practiced in some ancient cultures, but then fell out of fashion and became rare. If you don't know when and where and why this happened, your understanding of history is too narrow. And if you don't know someone who feels same-sex attraction but chooses lifelong abstinence and finds that that draws them toward God, you don't really understand what God can do. Speak and engage on this issue, yes, but in proportion to how often it confronts you daily because we're not here as a community to rant and make blanket statements about people's very specific, very real, and sometimes very painful stories. We're here to minister out of grace and truth 
And the best truth is experienced truth. I am happy to meet with anyone, any family member, any friend who has skin in the game. Your child told you they may be gay or transgendered. Your LGBTQ plus friend wants to come to our church. You yourself are feeling same-sex attraction or gender questioning. What will we do when we talk? We will talk about prayer and we'll talk about how to hear from God so that you can find the path he has for you and you don't have to find that path alone. I'll tell you this also from experience and I see it again and again. When you have to face this issue personally, when you have to look it in the eyes sitting across from you, your liberalism or your conservatism goes out the window immediately. Your easy joking nature about all of this or your self-righteous rants shrink to really, really small. But your serious dedication to love a person gets much, much bigger in that moment. And you begin to learn what love really demands of you. For everyone else who doesn't have this much skin in the game, you do have a story. And it is unique to you. And it is the ministry God does call you to. To pour in all of your gifts and all of your passion and all of your grace and truth especially your experienced truth. And to answer God's call and to benefit his kingdom, you must focus there. To the one who wrote this question or anyone who could have written this question, I'm not sure you have to say very much at all if a conversation turns this way. I'm not sure you have to defend anything or change or fix anyone. You say you don't start conversations about it, I say you're wise. But someday this issue may cross your path in a real way. And I'm here and the church is here to help you address it when you need to. When I'm confronted in a hostile or a challenging fashion by an LGBTQ plus friend or acquaintance, I've always said the same thing. It's, it's the same thing I've said to any of my friends who are involved in something that, that I think is a sin and, and they don't. I say, according to my belief, getting drunk, according to my belief, being promiscuous, according to my belief, same-sex relationships are not good for you. They won't bring what they promise. They don't carry what God has for you. I don't use words like right and wrong in that first sentence because in my honest opinion, that's really not what sin is. Sin is not an arbitrary list of things that are right and wrong, and he needed to code a ring to know which is which. Sin are the things that God reveals to us as not good for us, not good for creation. So I say, according to my belief, same-sex relationships are not good for you. It won't bring what it promises. It doesn't carry what God has for you. But I am your friend. I accept you. I love you as a person. The fact that you've shared this with me doesn't change much between us. With those two lines, you've done two things. First, you've stated what you think. 
honestly, truly, briefly, not preachy. But you move quickly past that to what's probably really being asked. And you pass the friendship test. You've not rejected someone for a disagreement in values. You still value the person. You still want to be their friend. You still want to be family to them. You've not driven them deeper into a subculture that's going to be worse. And now you've left it in God's hands. And when they come to that place, perhaps in the near future, perhaps in the very distant future, where they realize for themselves, this has not brought what it promised. This is not going well for me. In that moment, having probably surrounded themselves with a world of people who encouraged them and cheered them down this path that now have nothing to offer them, they now remember you. The one who said something different, but said it in a kind and a loving way. A way that left the door open for, they, for them to come back to you if they would like. To hear more about this other way you briefly hinted at that day. Months, years, sometimes decades later, I have had friends that I said that to come back around, sometimes contacting me from across the country, and say, tell me more about this way of Jesus Christ. I'll close with Romans 8. It was written by Paul, but I say it from my own heart with deep conviction. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord.